Thoughts on the Wheel, a podcast where we will spend far too much time thinking out loud about Robert Jordan's The Wheel of Time. I'm James Matthijs. And I'm David Arnold. Come join our exploration of the intricate weaves and tangled webs of our favorite 30-pound fantasy series. We'll trace the threads of Jordan's story and pull out the what's, why's, how's, and who's of his character's interactions. Our task is to stitch together the ethics, politics, psychology, societal norms, and wool-brain decision-making that when woven together, create a multi-hued tapestry of humanity against the looming shadow of apocalypse. Episode 1. A Beginning. Hi, I'm David. Hi, I'm James. Been reading The Wheel of Time off and on for a little over 20 years. Uh, started the books around book 7. We read the whole series up to whatever book came out from that point forward. And I've done sporadic rereads of different parts of the series since... So I've read each Wheel of Time book that Jordan wrote at least five times, and I've done one or more rereads of some of the Sanderson Wheel of Time books. I actually can't even remember what age I was when I got started reading The Wheel of Time. I'm trying to remember where I even got the book. Maybe it was the library? Maybe a friend loaned me The Eye of the World? I used to borrow books back then. People would loan each other books. And that's a possible vector. But only up to book seven was available when I started reading it. So I just read books one through seven and then stopped to wait for the series to be finished before I continued it. Yeah, I'm also having a hard time remembering if I got it from the school library to start with or if I just started buying the books first. Uh, I do know that I, after reading the first book, went ahead and just picked it up and bought the rest of the books that are out, which also was around book seven. And unlike you, I picked up each book as it came out and reread every book up until that point for each new release until the final book of the series. So I reread the books multiple times. You nerd. Says yeah. me. <laughs> My co-host on a Wheel of Time podcast. Exactly. Uh, kettle on line one. <laughs> so... It's an interesting series for that, where it is long, but I've enjoyed it more on the rereads. And I also enjoy it more the older I get. I think it helps to have a wider set of life experiences to draw on to better absorb these books. Yeah, I definitely didn't pick up as much about it the first time through as I did on the reread. Granted, I think I was in my teens the first time I read it, and in my old enough to not tell you how old I was when I read it, when I read it the second time. Yeah, I've only read through the whole series once. I read book books one through seven, and then the whole series while we were making this podcast, and just started on the third read. Technically the same, because I had never read the final book until we got ready for this i have as i said reread most of the books in the double digits of times but i never actually finished the series because unfortunately robert jordan passed before finishing the series and brandon sanderson came in to write the last few books uh, to finish off the work and yeah i really fell in love with robert jordan's writing i liked his style i liked how he presented people and that's what was special to me about these books I think what I liked most is there's just a visceral reality to his writing that underlies all of the fantasy trappings. Uh, in a way, it's it's almost like a clever cunningness. And I think it's most evident when you write when you read how he wrote his battle scenes, because he was a veteran and he captures what it's like to be in combat in a way that feels real. Yeah, people are not necessarily rational during, before, or after combat. It almost feels like getting to watch doctors and nurses practicing medicine up close in a time of emergency, um, and like understanding what it's like, as opposed to merely hearing like numbers and facts recounted about something. Uh, looking at it through the eyes of someone in a, a, where 
that someone has been built up to be a real character and have real reactions is much more visceral than you find in uh, probably even most military fiction, I would imagine. I think a lot of it's due to how he writes, which you know, he is very much rooted in the third-person limited narrative. You always see through the eyes of a given point-of-view character. There are only a couple lines in the series outside of the beginning and ending of each book as a bit of an omniscient narrator. And there are only a couple lines that don't seem to be in third-person limited other than those. And everything you're presented is filtered through that lens. And he does such a good job of building up who the characters are that you should know how they're going to react to things. So it lets you completely immerse yourself, especially in battle scenes where, as you're saying, you know, it's, you're not getting the big numbers. You're not seeing what's happened. You were right there. You know, if you're doing this as a film, it would be the, the shaky cam, first-person style, following the action. The opening scene of Saving Private Ryan kind of thing, I think, is what you're getting at. Yeah, where it's not there to add unnecessary confusion or a fake sense of urgency or anything. It's there to get you to feel how the character feels. He does this throughout the books. It's not just in battle scenes, but he writes with a layer of... They generally call it battle fog um, or just limiting what the character knows to what the character should know. They are not given the answer to questions. They are constantly misinterpreting things. They are making assumptions about what other characters know, and they're wrong often. Not to mention that they are confused at times and not entirely aware of what's going on. Um, or they've just had lots of bad luck in the past and they're nervous about specific irrational events occurring. So the characters were given in the eye of the world. What age are they? And I think they, they kind of feel slightly misaged or underaged or overaged. Can you clarify that? So at least in the first book, the main cast is comprised of the Innisfielders and Lan and Moraine and Tom Marilyn. And for the Emmonsfield boys, they're all 20 years old. Nynaeve is 24, 25, and Egwene is 18. And a lot of the times, and there's complaints that I've seen other people make, is that the characters don't necessarily feel that age. Um, Matt's pranks come across as if he was much, much younger than he should be. He pours a bunch of flour on one of the Luhan's dogs, and it's convincing some of the younger boys that they're ghosts and you know, causing mischief like that. Um, you know, he's referred to as stealing pies and things, and it's all stuff that's cute and adorable mischief from like a 13-year-old, not so much a 20-year-old. Egwene is slightly younger than the boys and is plucky and wants to go on an adventure, but acts as if she's much more mature than the boys are. Nynaeve, who's only five years older than the boys, was a babysitter for them for a long time, helped raise them, as the wisdom of the town is responsible for upholding standards of morals and things. And it puts her as if she's much older than the boys than their five-year gap should have them be. Sorry, did you say but, standards of morals? Yeah. Um, yeah. So the wisdom, as she puts it, uh, oh, the wisdom as she interprets it is responsible for making sure everyone behaves properly by the moral standards of Emmonsfield and the Two Rivers, which is a very conservative, isolated, rural town. It is a super small town. In my experience, small towns are kind of like that. They tend to raise people who are much less worldly just because they experience less. Like, they're both kind of more worldly and less. So they're more worldly in the way that they're closer to the acts of life and death. They may have seen, they almost certainly have seen a live birth of some kind of livestock. Um, they've probably seen animals slaughtered to be food. So in these ways, they're, they're actually more mature than your average people. But also, they don't get the cultural maturity of knowing how people from other places react or what other places are like. 
So they are naive in that way. Uh, like when they get to Barillon and think that this is finally the big city. Um, so I, I think it's probably difficult to write those ages correctly. It might also have, like, as you were saying that, I was thinking, are the boys less mature on purpose because this is a matriarchal society and people just sort of expect boys to be idiots? That becomes difficult, uh, depending on how you define a matriarchal society. Because at least in the two rivers, it is nominally divided equally with the village council and the women's circle. Uh, the women's circle obviously think they're the higher authority, whereas the village council thinks that they're the higher authority. So it balances relatively well, even though the women do seem to get their way more often than not in the two rivers. But it's, it's one of the things that fascinates me about the series. One of the things I want to talk about as we go forward into the books is this exploration of the different societies that Robert Jordan presents. You know, we are one of the benefits of having the main characters come from such a isolated small town is they all come from a very defined starting position. As we see them spread out in the world and go and meet different cultures, we can help understand how those cultures actually work by knowing where the Inman filters are coming from when they're judging and the way they're playing off of them. And then you get start seeing, you know, how one big one large city plays off of another large city and how people from them have biases against each other long-standing feuds between peoples all get played out over the course of the series i find a lot of value in that i also find a lot of value in thinking about as these emmons fielders go out what does it say about them the choices that they choose to make and the methods that they use for approaching the world. So Egwene learning about new cultures as her adaptation mechanism starts with her encounters with the traveling people. Uh, she's always wanted to leave Emmons Field and go on an adventure. And Matt's being suspicious, although that's not necessarily all him, but he is very resistant to going to the outside world, and he vocally says he's only doing it to go along with the rest of them. Or is that how he's portrayed in the show? So another thing that I do... Uh, he is the most adventurous one in the book. Yeah. Of the boys. Yep. Uh, he's he's portrayed as very reluctant in the show. So I am sort of uh, our ad ambassador to the show from the book. Uh, I highly prefer the books in general, but I'm happy that the show exists. And I tried. I tried to go in with an open mind, but I could not separate my book knowledge from the show knowledge, and it just kept bouncing me out. So uh, I've watched people review the series i've listened to commentary about it i've been reading up upon you know things about the show but i have not watched it other than a couple scenes here and there although you have read about people watching it enough that you have a pretty good idea of what happens in the show yeah i, I follow news of it just out of morbid curiosity but i don't engage in hate watching so if i don't like something i just don't watch it yeah, at some point in this podcast, we will probably go over some of the show specific things, and I might break down and watch it from a analysis standpoint, but that will be later. Yes, and we also won't forever be tied to only the Wheel of Time. Although I suspect that because of how many books the Wheel of Time is, if it's very successful, we will never see the end of it. Hollywood loves extensive novella-based script sources. That and just the books themselves have so much to dig into. I know for me personally, studying the politics of the different interactions is fascinating. Looking at trying to remove some of the fog of war that Robert Jordan presents and understanding how the battles are playing out in the big picture is a fun challenge. Whereas for you, some of the metaphysical understanding of the world is more of your draw. Yeah, I like to dig into the psychology of what's happening in the moment and understand. I believe Robert Jordan used the Wheel of Time partially to talk about, uh, you know, PTSD and mental illness and 
the motivations behind why people do shocking or violent things. It is a, it's sort of, so people have called him the American Tolkien. He's also, he's bringing a lot of other cultures into the mix and also mixing them up. I don't think Tolkien did that as much. Uh, I think he was a little more black and white and didn't conceive of an in-depth philosophy for the people on the evil side. Which Jordan also presents a the light versus the dark, good versus evil type confrontation. Especially in the Eye of the World, you'll notice a lot of similarities to Tolkien. Uh, very much an homage, but also to take parts of a familiar story to ease you into his world before he branches out into the expansive stuff he does in later books. And it's, I think, less so that he explores the true depths of the psyche of people on the dark side, more so that he shows you all of the many shades of gray that exist between the two extremes. Most people are just people. So I think we both have an appreciation for his writing in terms of the hero's journey and sort of the playing with a myth and legend and the notion that things repeat and they may be different flavors of the old thing, but portrayed in a twist. Yeah, he pulled from a shockingly large number of sources for inspiration or reference in his works. Everything from Arthurian legend to various real religions to various real world people. And because at the start we're not aware of how much this is embedded into the book, we're not used to thinking of our main characters as identifiably the myths of legend. We're used to identifying ourselves with the main character not the main character with a myth in our own world. No, it definitely is. It's a weird amalgamation of, you know, an individual fantasy story protagonist where you're, where you're just going on their adventure versus studying a historical legend and mythology. And it, it hits differently depending on what your expectation is of that experience. And I think that by explaining it to other people who have read the same series, I hope to guide them into a greater appreciation for these books that they've already put a bunch of time into. Like, why not get more out of it? Yeah, I, I do wonder how much of the complaints I've heard about The Wheel of Time are due to a misunderstanding of what was being presented. Uh, I know people have vastly different opinions about different characters. You know, some people's favorite characters are other people's most hated characters in the book. Um, I like almost every character in these books who has, no, I guess I should say that there are almost 3,000 characters in these books. Oh, named characters. Most of them are not important players. <laughs> you don't have to try to keep track of all those characters. But of the main hundred or so, I like all of them. I think I understand them all pretty well. And some of them do very bad things, but you still kind of get it. Yeah. Well, you might not like them as a person, but you should be able to appreciate them as a character. And it's interesting to see people who have revisited the books and how their opinion changes from first read to second read or subsequent reads from that. There's generally people's lists of best characters or favorite characters to read about changes both as you get older and just as you understand what's going on in the books more. It definitely hit me different the second time, and it is hitting me different the third time. So I embarked on yet another reread for me, which I don't reread things. I have reread very few books in my life, but this James person got me to think about it differently and now I'm on a podcast. So yeah, The Wheel of Time is just a little bit deeper than most things that I've read. 
a character can think something that is just plain wrong. And it's up to the reader to identify the lie. And that's not done very well in most places. Everything is told from the point of view of a given character. And all of the judgments, morality, and anything else that you would get from a objective narrator is filtered through that individual character, which is what makes it so interesting as a comparative cultural study or just a comparative individual psyche study is you start learning how that character sees the world and how all of their prior experiences and biases will be presented through the text. And it is, it's one of those things that throws a lot of people off if they're not used to it. And if they're used to having a book provide any type of moral judgment or narrative judgment onto things, it doesn't necessarily come about. You will have characters who do really bad things that think it's completely justified because in their worldview or with their set of preconceived notions about how things should be, it is justified. And you have characters who make tons of mistakes trying to understand another character because they're unable to put themselves into that character's mindset. One of the main points about the Wheel of Time is a binary presentation of sex, men versus women. Gender. And and it's interesting when you start playing it against the ideas of gender with whether or not each culture has a different definition of what a male and female gender should be. And you start playing through all kinds of different examples of how people act and how it conforms to gender stereotypes or not. And a lot of it is not picked up on by whatever point of view character you're reading. So most of the characters in the first book, the most of the main point of view characters all come from the Two Rivers, a conservative small town in the middle of nowhere. And they are constantly being forced to interact with people of other cultures. And when those people are acting the way that is normal for their culture, it comes across as very strange and alien to the main characters. He also captures the fact that people are hypocrites. And not just hypocrites, but people change. And one of the things about the series that is off-putting to some people is it's 14 books long with a prequel book for a total of 15 books. It's over 4 million words long. Character arcs happen, and they happen over time, and it can take a while which is realistic. You rarely have, you can have traumatic or super eventful points in someone's life that shift their personality and cause them to do drastic changes in action or thought. But generally it's gradual and you will have characters who have to experience the same lesson repeatedly before it. They'll they'll experience a lesson and gradually shift and they have to experience a lesson a couple more times before it actually affects their personality. And I think it is a much more realistic presentation, but Realism is not necessarily a a fun aspect to read, and you will run into some parts that will probably make you uncomfortable at some point or another in the series. And it is just a question of if you are able to remove yourself and your biases and preconceived notions from the text to interact with it and how well that will influence your opinions of the books. Yeah, you confront a lot of difficult topics. And really, The Wheel of Time was sort of an interesting intersection for me. I had read all the Dragonlance novels before I came to Wheel of Time, so I already really liked fantasy fiction. I had read things like The Death Gate Cycle by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. Almost everything Stephen King wrote up until 1996. Um, And I think that that gave me this appreciation of fantasy horror, which... Robert Jordan does fantasy horror very well, which is also a rare thing in the fantasy world. It's kind of understated. And I think it's funny that neither of us mentioned Tolkien, despite us both having definitely read Tolkien. Well, so the Lord of the Rings doesn't seem as voluminous. I'm sure if we went and read all the supporting material and were nerds about it like we are about the Wheel of Time, we would think about it as an equivalent work. The thing is, it definitely provided a large framework for how the Wheel of Time starts. And that was both a reality of writing fantasy at the time, where if you were not writing like Tolkien, it was harder to get published. But it was also an intentional homage from Jordan to Tolkien and how the Two Rivers is set up and how some elements of the plot seem to reflect 
parts of the Fellowship of the Rings. But no, so it is part of the hero's journey is being set up into a familiar circumstance, having the character have an inciting incident that takes them out of it. And then you start going into the world of the unknown and all the stuff from the Year of a Thousand Faces. And kind of from a meta level, that's what Jordan does by presenting you the familiar fantasy world presented by Tolkien before he starts slowly breaking you out of it into the unfamiliar that the Wheel of Time presents. It's, if you had the Black Rider, but the Merge Roll and the Ring Rates are very different, despite them being a Black Rider. Uh, Moraine taking on the Gandalf role as the wise magic user who comes to town and has a staff and is the inciting incident, well, the bringer of the inciting incident, basically, provides some of the mentor role. Um, and yes, that is supposed to be familiar. That is a very well-known trope in fantasy these days. But even from the outset, Jordan is showing you that it's going to be different because it's not the old wise wizard guy coming in. It's the young noblewoman, and or maybe not a noble. Maybe she's somebody more. No one knows what her backstory is until it's revealed. It's like, okay, so this is not going to be just the normal presentation of, you know, wise wizard. Yeah, and Gandalf uses magic like what four times in the whole series, and it's immediately apparent that magic is far more common in the Wheel of Time. Uh, another thing I enjoyed about the Wheel of Time is uh, these characters have problems. They have immediate problems that affect their life all the time, and. If somebody gets a wound or something, they actually suffer from it. They will feel it for the rest of the whatever. In a way, we, uh, you have mentioned that the Wheel of Time is better on a reread, which we do want to bury the lead when we say that, because the only thing that seems more tedious than reading a 14-15 book series is reading it twice. But I think that by reading The Wheel of Time, it made me a more mature and better person and able to better consider what to do with evil, um, how to be good, the kinds of things that sort of good people do, because the judgments are left up to the reader, and it's not heavy-handed, and in that way it can't be wrong. And so I look at this as one of these books or series you can read over and over where you're just learning stuff about humanity from the author by rereading them. And uh, some folks say that this kind of process will lead you closer to enlightenment or all the way to it. Uh, there have been philosophical works that are supposed to do just that. If you study them, you'll eventually become enlightened. And by become enlightened, I mean understand the way the world works and people work and your context in that and how you work to some extent so yeah the this he he is a wise teacher i feel in quite a few ways in fact in his wise teacher way he feels close to kurt vonnegut of all the other authors i could think of but yeah the, that's just my take on this whole reading the wheel of time to better yourself <laughs> honestly they have been doing research that has shown positive correlation between reading fiction and empathy and i think that was part of my draw with the cultural analysis aspects of the wheel of time and the different povs and how well jordan maintains the um legitimacy and well, not legit, how well jordan maintains the individual within each specific POV is that it lets you practice empathy. And on your first read through, when you're being limited to whatever POV character is given to you at the, any given scene, when you're meeting new characters or seeing how they're interacting, you are not as able on the first read to appreciate what's going on in every other character's head in a scene. And it's only after you've gotten enough POVs from any enough point of views from any given character that you're then able to apply that knowledge you've gained to how they're acting when it's not from their head. So like being able to go back and read Matt in book one and having a better idea who Matt is lets you put more into the scenes than you get on the first read. It's like you understand what Moraine is thinking. You understand what Tom is thinking. You understand what Gwen is thinking. And Rand doesn't, or Rand will just be wrong 
consistently about what a character is thinking or the motivations behind an action. And on rereading, like, oh, that's what this person was doing and why and how it ties in here. And that's why they're acting here. And yeah, it's almost like a mystery novel where you're having to go back and find the killer, but it's more just understanding the actual motivations of characters. I think one of the biggest draws I've had to it was I've gotten, I've been doing D&D and various other tabletop RPGs for a long time. And understanding that way of presenting a story is a vital skill for a DM, I think. And I really think that it is a strong training tool for being better able to run games and narratives that involve multiple characters. So that said, while we're on that topic, the reason I brought up Stephen King earlier is he does the POV thing. He usually does it with about three to five characters per uh, per book. So it's it's more limited, but he uses many of the same techniques that Jordan does in his writing. I mean, Rand sticks out to me because he is 80% of the first book, right? Like, he seems pretty important. And he he's very human. He, uh, he you know, he loves his father. Uh, the first time we see Rand, he is with his father. Yep, they're walking back to town for the first time after a couple weeks away in late spring, or early spring, late winter. And he's just on the road with his dad and... You can tell just from the way it's written. Like he's constantly looking to his dad for reassurance when he's unnerved and he respects him highly. It's a really, really good father-son bond. He's also sort of the first person to respond to requests for help, which is usually, I mean, Matt is portrayed as always sort of agreeing to help and then just standing around, whereas Rand is the one who does most of the work. Ironically, I would say the opposite oh not ironically but uh the first time that you see matt and rand helping well matt and rand interacting when rand is being told to help unload the cart that he and tam have and it's you know it's his chore matt volunteers himself basically well he gets asked to help and rand lets gives him an option to get out of it matt says no and then rand gets distracted and it's actually matt who's doing the work and calling him back into like hey rand are you are you gonna do this or not <laughs> Because he's been doing all the work. Ah, okay. I must have misremembered that. I'm going to have to go through and do another reread. Yeah. It's one of those... People have a very bad opinion of early book Matt and think he's a bad friend. Well, he does try to weasel out of stuff a lot. He hates responsibility. But once he is obligated to do something, he follows through on it. And I think he knows that he's going to follow through on it, so he's always trying to get out of having anyone ever ask him to do anything because he knows that he's going to have to do it once he agrees. He is a person of his word too. That's, that's actually important to both Rand and Matt. Yeah. It's one of those, like all, all the Evans soldiers are good people. Except the Congers. Everybody hates the Congers. <laughs> I was mostly meaning it. Every one of our two rivers people that we follow as POV characters are good people, but yeah, generally on the whole, most of the two rivers are like really good people. And even your bad slacker, you know, look down upon outcast families of the Congers and the Coplins are still not really that bad. They're just lazy and selfish. And cynical. They, uh, and cynical. They're the devil's advocates of the two rivers. Yeah. But as far as, you know, the worst people of a group, you're doing pretty well if that's your lowest standard. Yeah, nobody gets murdered in the two rivers. It's It's a quiet country community. And to build on the Rand and Matt, uh, Perrin is also their friend. Uh, he's he's kind of by himself a lot more. He tends to keep to himself. He's quieter. He doesn't talk as much. He's a big guy. Is he as tall as Rand or a little shorter? Uh, he's shorter, but like one and a half times as wide. <laughs> okay, so he's, he's a broad, muscular guy, we are told. Yeah. Uh, he's a blacksmith. Blacksmith's apprentice, actually. And he is shown to also have a good relationship with his uh, master, Luhan. Uh, he very much listens to him and follows the way he does things. That is the sense that I got from their relationship. It's one of those with that form of apprenticeship. You, For the years that you are the apprentice to a tradesman, they become closer to you than your family a lot of the times. 
I always got the sense that Perrin lived with Master Luhan at the forge and would then go visit his family uh, for the entirety of his apprenticeship. He was not just, it was much, much more the Luhans became Perrin's guardians as part of the apprenticeship. Yeah, Maestro Luhan is definitely mentioned quite a bit more than, I don't even think Perrin's parents are mentioned, are they? Uh, they're house gets attacked in the first book and i think that's the only mention of them in the first book yeah they are not introduced along with perrin by any means as opposed to i'm not confusing show matt and book matt i don't think when i say that we're given at least a brief look at matt's parents uh you meet abel cawthon a little bit in the book uh his mom is mentioned but not really shown. She is and named. You don't meet his... She is named, yep. isn't she? Okay. Which I don't remember her name off the top of my head. Well, I hope it's not Matron Cawthon. Although she could be called that in a world of mistresses and masters. Ah, uh, her name is Natty Cawthon. Natty, okay. So you have Abel, Natty, Bode, Eldrin, with Bode and Eldrin being his two younger sisters. But even then, like, Bode is... 13, 12, that range, I think. So if Matt's mother married the creator, you could call her Natty Light? And we're done. Episode <laughs> one, and we're finished with the podcast. <laughs> Blue I'm ribbons sorry. all around. <laughs> no, we should talk about the girls, though. So... Yeah. The character that first stuck out to me in terms of the girls was Nanave. She's She was my favorite. She has this sort of... I don't know. When I think about her, I think of somebody who is stressed out all the time, and she's the cause of a lot of it, but also everybody around her is also the cause of it, and she's the only one that knows it. She she has a very much like a, a mom of ten vibe, a little bit. Was this your take on the original read, or on... Reads. This is my take on sort of Nanave the Wisdom, right? Because that's who <laughs> that's we, who we meet in book one. Yeah. As far as the joy of rereads and things, um, Nynaeve is consistently rated highly by fans who have read more of the series than just the first book. I liked her because she was a she was a step in authority between the. Emmonsfield 5 and Moraine, right? She's like the local authority that is losing authority a little bit, but she's still minding them. She's still looking after them, even though I got the tough love vibe. Yeah, it's one of those when, when I first read the series, she was very much a stick in the mud who was just trying to keep all the kids from having too much fun. And her first thing is... She gets on to Matt for his language and for doing just like dumb teenage stuff. She follows them as kids trying to get them to come back home, despite, you know, destiny calling to them. But on rereads, once you know more about her or just being older, it's very much a, hey, yeah, she's trying to keep all these kids alive and safe. And that is her objective is to just look out for the people that she feels responsible for. Very much your mother of 10 uh, analogy. She is stressed out and worried and trying to take care of people who seem to be displaying the survival instinct of a toddler, which is run headfirst into any trouble possible and need someone to look after you. Yeah, and she's so she also displays two things, anger and a lack of self-awareness about the anger. And I like that combination. Then you have Egwene who is presented as Rand's love interest, but very, very quickly asserts herself into the story and takes agency of her course of events. She's the only one in Emmons Field who figures out that the boys are going to be leaving before they leave, and she intrudes into the party to come along for the adventure before Moraine takes her under her wing to start training her with the One Power. So early, early when they first introduce him and the boys are talking to each other, it's obvious that all the boys kind of want to go out on an adventure. They've 
explored the limits of Emmons Field, the two rivers. They've gone farther than a lot of people have just to the mountains that are a couple of days outside of town. And they're always talking about, hey, let's go out and make a name for ourselves. And Egwene is that 100%. And whereas all of the boys, despite wanting to go do that, feel that they've been forced into it, Egwene chooses. And when all of the boys start regretting their actions, Egwene actually follows through with her desire to see the rest of the world. She is the least likely to get homesick of any of them. As a result, Moraine starts teaching her a lot earlier than uh, anybody else, right? It's, Nynaeve refuses originally to learn, and Moraine really can't teach the boys anything. Yeah. Although Lan does strike up his uh, his mentorship with the boys. It's one of the first cracks that forms in his exterior is from his relationship to the boys. He sees the potential in them, right? And that sort of breaks him out of it and says, this is something worth doing. That's a way to look at it. You really don't get much from Land's POV in the series. It is more just watching how he plays off of other characters and the fact that he, or Moraine's observations of him. So let's see. Who have we left out? Tom Marilyn. Tom Marilyn. uh, First of all, Gandalf has several people. So I think uh, between Moraine, Tom Marilyn, and Patton Fane, that that combination sort of ser- serves the purpose that only needed Gandalf and the Gandalf and Aragorn in the uh, uh, Lord of the Rings. I mean, Aragorn and Lan are pretty much the same role. I'm interested that you put Patton Fane in with Moraine and Tom as a Merlin figure. Not a Merlin and figure. I- I'll figure. Sorry, that was my my next point was that Tom, Marilyn, and Moraine are basically Merlin distributed to two people. Okay, yeah, that's I think largely what I sensed. I only meant Pat and Fane for the for that he, you know, when Gandalf rides into town and like has the cart full of stuff and the fireworks, um, Pat and Fane sort of gotcha. serves that like. Oh, this place is a place that relies on these outside carts, and it kind of tells a bit about the story, or a bit about the uh, location. Like, they don't see Gleeman here, except for every once in a while. They don't see a merchant here, except for every once in a while. This merchant comes bearing tales of war, which, like, foreshadows. That would actually be an interesting comparison to make, because you do have Gandalf's um, reputation for being a harbinger of bad news. And that leads to some of his nicknames. And he's also the one, as you said, who brought fireworks and stuff. So yeah, having Patton Fane be the roving traveler salesman who comes with fireworks and tales of dangers from the outside world is definitely a role Gandalf played. I hadn't considered that. And that's why we're still talking about the Wheel of Time is because we come across that stuff all the time. But we, we are cheating as far as a uh, read-through because there have been a couple of companion books released for the Wheel of Time that have provided a bunch of extra insight into the connective tissue of the world. Oh, please. We were right about this stuff before we started reading all the secondary material. Yes, but now we just have even more to pull from. Yeah. So <laughs> I was going to say, I'm very much doing a my new read-through of the series that I've just started with the extra information in mind. So I'm hoping to have, as I finish yet another read through of the wheel of time, I hope to have even more new things to talk about because I've always entered the series with more than I had before. Yeah. Yeah. So Tom is a traveling minstrel in this world referred to as a a glee man. Uh, He provides a mentoring role to the two rivers boys. Uh, He's pretty much the counterpoint to Moraine whereas Moraine is taking Egwene and to a limited degree Nynaeve under her wing. Tom is taking Matt and Rand under his wing. Perrin ends up going a third option. Yeah. Perrin doesn't really get mentors, does he? Oh, he very much does. He gets Elias and the wolves. Uh, yeah. Those guys. So yeah, Tom. Tom was cool to me because... And actually, Book Tom, to me, is much more 
poignant and present than Showtime. Showtime was all right, but he sang a horrible song. I can take that part out, but I, I <laughs> Gleeman, sh Gleeman should be better at music. There's a definite aspect of the Wheel of Time that the show, oh, basically just a whole part where I've not watched the show. I tried. I went into it with an attempt at an open mind. I really enjoyed some of the casting decisions they had made going in, and I did not make it through the first episode. I, I tried to watch episode four, and other than that, my uh, involvement with the show has been watching analysis videos and studies of the show. I, I could not make it through it. Whereas I ate it up and loved it and was surprised that there was something being made on TV about this series that I had read when I was like 14, 15. So if you were coming from the show, basically the names are mostly the same and a couple of the plot beats are the same, but the order and meaning of all of them have been shuffled or removed from the eye of the world. So especially with David having enjoyed the show, uh, there'll be some plot points, like the fact that Elias was a vital part of parents' progression in book one and Elias is not mentioned in season one of the show. It, uh, it's a definitely a different progression through the series than you get from reading it. I mean, El Elias has all the characteristics of someone who would be cut from TV, right? I mean, they're going to put him in season two. Oh, okay, good. I think they're combining him and uh, her in. Oh, one of the thief catchers? Yep. Ah, nice. Which I think is a good decision to make. I still just would have introduced Elias in season one. But... Yeah, it... It felt like he was a natural, like in the books, it was good. It felt good that he, he accompanied Perrin and Egwene with the traveling people and explained them. Yeah, basically, so early in the series, or early in the book, the party gets split. And you have Rand and Matt and Tom. You have Lan, Moraine, and Nynaeve. Then you have Perrin, Egwene, and Elias. So each character... Each of the Two Rivers characters still has a world-wise mentor figure with them who can explain things to them and the audience. It was actually a really clever usage of experienced people in the world associating with the party. Yeah, and that even gets taken a step further when Moraine leads them later into a city and then later into Shadar Logoth, where... Suddenly, it seems as if Moraine is either right at the edge of her depth or a little out of her depth, from what she talks with Lan about. Moraine can't spin a shield of the power that will keep out all the nasties in Shadar Logoth. So she just tells them, like, here's how you avoid getting yourself killed here. Stick with me and hope we're lucky. Yeah, uh, it's one of those, as you were saying, the characters are flawed. Moraine, despite being head and shoulders above the competence of any of the Emmonsfield characters, is still at risk. She cannot just magic her way through the scenarios they're facing. It's one of those, she provides some safety and comfort to the group, but it is not absolute safety and comfort. And part of the growth of the Emmonsfield characters is realizing that adventures in the books are not adventures in real life. And there's real risk and danger involved in what they're doing. So even after they get split up and they always want to find Moraine again because she provides some sense of safety, they're also just worried about finding each other just so they have a sense of home. And none of that actually reduces the danger they're in. And soon they do all get taken their different ways. Yeah. Do you think we have discussed characters enough? Are we leaving anybody out? I mean, we could discuss Pat and Fane, but I feel like discussing Pat and Fane at all right now, like, we already discussed him. Yeah, Pat and Fane, he's better to discuss in book two, I think, than book one. Agreed. Although a side note, uh, Ordeath means Wormwood, and Wormwood is one of the harbingers of the Christian biblical apocalypse. And is also a reference to Wormtongue, or Grima Wormtongue. Hmm. From Tolkien. I see. You think so? Oh, 100%. I don't feel like the characters have... Well, okay. 
You know what? The guy or, who Ordeeth, corrupts. Ordeeth does. Yeah, Ordeeth does have something in common with Wormtongue at that time. Yes. Yeah. All right. We'll we'll either cut that out or move it. <laughs> no, I guess the Adam Fane is a person for another date. Yeah. Let's see, we discussed Egwene, Nenev, Matt. We didn't really discuss Matt and Perrin that much, except in context of Rand. But I yeah, think that's I, fair. For I feel like yeah, they're a group, right? They're they're like a gang of boys, basically. A, a small or initial. Yeah, it's one of those. I think we will have an episode or two on just Matt, on just Parent. Yeah, uh, so one of the amusing things that the boys do in... I think they do this in the first book a little. It does continue. All the boys think all the other boys are so much better with women than they are. It, it is very much me. Thank you for joining us to talk about Robert Jordan's epic, The Wheel of Time. Email your comments and questions to nerds at wheelthought.com or visit us on the web at wheelthought.com. Thoughts on the Wheel was reported, edited, and produced by David Arnold and Gene Dice. Intro music was Cinematic Time Lapse by Lexit Music, and outro music is Inspiring Cinematic Asia, also by Lexit Music. The Wheel of Time copyright is held from 1990 to present by the Bandersnatch Group Incorporated.